The passage to which we come this morning is without a doubt the most debated section in all of Revelation and perhaps in all of Scripture. And I like a good debate, so I'm a little bit giddy to stand up before you this week and in a couple of weeks as we conclude this message. Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 10 and in particular the meaning and the timing of the 1,000 years has been the battleground for armchair theologians and seminary lunch tables and entire denominations for generations. And the issue is not merely one of idle speculation. At stake in the debate over how we're to understand this passage is nothing less than our conception of how the world will end. By way of introduction this morning, I thought I would very briefly survey the three main views of this passage that have dominated the history of the church. Each view is known by its particular understanding of the relationship between chapter 19 and chapter 20, between the return of Christ and the 1,000 years, the millennium, described in chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Some, probably the majority of you, hold to what is known as a pre-millennial view, which means that they believe that the return of Christ in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, occurs chronologically before, prior to, the binding of Satan and the 1,000-year reign of Christ described in chapter 20. Today, there are two main forms of premillennialism that dominate the theological scene. All right, I'm going to throw some big words at you, but that's okay. It's good to learn big words. Sometimes you need big words to define and encapsulate big truths. So don't be scared of them. We'll give you the definitions that you need. Two main forms of premillennialism. Number one, pre-tribulational premillennialism, also known as dispensationalism, posits a secret coming of Christ for His church, known as the rapture, followed by a literal seven-year period of tribulation, followed by the return of Christ at the battle of Armageddon, followed by a thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth during which Satan is bound, followed by the release of Satan from the bottomless pit, the gathering of the nations against Christ's earthly kingdom, the final defeat of Satan, and the judgment at the end of the age. That's pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism, also known as dispensationalism. This is John MacArthur's view, for instance. Post-tribulational or historic premillennialism rejects a pre-tribulational rapture as unbiblical and a literal seven-year tribulation as unbiblical. But they affirm the return of Christ at Armageddon in chapter 19 precedes the reign of Christ upon the earth for a thousand years during which Satan is bound chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, followed by the release of Satan, the gathering of the nations, the defeat of Satan, chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, and 
the judgment of the wicked at the end of chapter 20 and the eternal state in chapters 21 and 22. All right, those are the two main forms of premillennialism. Now, even though there are multiple more variations among those who hold to the premillennial view, almost every premillennialist believes three things. Number one, the visions of Revelation are to be understood in a more or less literal fashion and follow a more or less chronological sequence. The visions of Revelation are to be understood in a more or less literal fashion and follow a more or less chronological sequence through the book of Revelation. Therefore, the battle in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, is different from and prior to the battle described in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. All premillennialists hold to that. Number two, the thousand-year reign is a future period after the return of Christ at Armageddon, chapter 19, at which time believers will be raised bodily and will reign with Christ upon the earth. Every premillennialist believes that. And number three, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released, will gather the nations to war, will be defeated by Christ, and then the rest of the dead will be raised and final judgment will come. Every premillennialist believes that. Pre-tribulational premillennialism, also known as dispensationalism, this is MacArthur's view, has only been around since about 1830. And it won mass appeal in the early 20th century by its publication in the Schofield Reference Bible, which was in the home of almost every evangelical family in the United States in the first half of our century, or the last century. Then it was revived in the 1970s by the best-selling non-fiction book of the 1970s known as The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And then it was revived once more in the 1990s in the Left Behind series, the best-selling fictional work, of the 1990s by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And I would suspect it is the default view of almost every one of you. It was my default view. It was the view that I was taught growing up. In fact, it wasn't until about 10 years ago I knew there was any other view out there. As I said, this view is represented by John MacArthur and a number of others. Post-tribulational or historic premillennialism has much stronger roots going back to the very first centuries of the church and the writings of such church fathers as Papias and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and others. This is the view of, for instance, John Piper. Now much more could be said regarding this view and in particular the way it views the relationship between Old Covenant Israel and the New Covenant Church, particularly the dispensational variety, and the way it understands the Old Testament prophecies. But this brief survey will have to suffice. So there's premillennialism. The second main view of history, and this was the one that dominated the 1600s and the 1700s and into the 1800s, what we might call, if you're a history buff, post-enlightenment Christianity, is known as post-millennialism. Which means that they believe that the return of Christ will happen after the thousand-year reign of Christ, post the millennium. 
Postmillennialism is marked by what I would call an unchecked optimism. It's a very optimistic view. Some postmillennialists believe that chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, is not actually the second coming of Christ, but rather refers to either an historical event like the destruction of Jerusalem or the fall of Rome, in other words, a spiritual coming of Christ, or an historical trend like Christ and his armies conquering the nations by the sword of the word through the preaching of the gospel. So they will spiritualize chapter 19. Others believe that chapter 19 is the actual second coming of Christ. But all post-millennialists believe that the thousand years of chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, okay, the binding of Satan, the reign of Christ and his saints upon the earth, refers to an age of prosperity and peace during which the gospel spreads across the globe. And here's the important thing. The vast majority of the world are converted to Christ. Individuals, families, cultures, nations come underneath the lordship of Christ and are radically transformed. The world is, in a sense, Christianized in postmillennialism, which is why I call it an optimistic view. I'm rather pessimistic as far as that goes. This millennial reign of Christ will be followed by the release of Satan, a brief but fierce rebellion against Christ and his church, and then Jesus will return physically to the earth to defeat his enemies, to raise the dead, and to judge the world. As I said, post-millennialism was the dominant view in English-speaking Christianity in post-millennial Christendom, but the 20th century shattered it in terms of its historical standing. It is hard to be optimistic about peace and prosperity covering the earth in a century that is marked by two world wars, horrific communist bloodshed, and multiple mass genocides. In other words, history forced us to become more pessimistic about the way the world is heading. And nobody took post-millennialists serious anymore. The third view known to history is ah-millennialism, which is actually kind of a misnomer. Ah-millennialism, the word, literally means no millennium, which is not exactly what the view teaches. Ah-millennialists do believe in a millennium but they understand it differently than both the premillennialists and the postmillennialists. Both the premillennialists and the postmillennialists believe that the thousand years are an unparalleled time of earthly peace and prosperity upon the earth. Amillennialists, on the other hand, believe that chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, does indeed refer to the second coming of Christ at the end of the age. But they also understand that the visions of Revelation are arranged not chronologically, but thematically and cyclically, showing the same events over and over and over again from different perspectives. In other words, amillennialists believe that Revelation chapter 16, the battle of Armageddon described in Revelation 16, verses 12 to 16, is the same battle described in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. And is the same battle described, described in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. There's not three final battles. They all describe the same event from different 
perspectives. The thousand years is, like the other numbers of Revelation, to be understood symbolically, representing the age between the first coming and the second comings of Christ. And so amillennialists believe that chapter 20 means that at the beginning of this age, Satan was, in some sense, bound by the death and resurrection of Christ so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. During this age, Satan is prevented from deceiving the nations, and so the gospel spreads to the whole world, and men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are converted and brought into the church, even while the beast continues to threaten, the false prophet continues to deceive, and the prostitute continues to seduce. Both happen at the same time in parallel with one another. The church prophesies and the church is persecuted at one and the same time. At the end of the age, Satan will be released from his bondage to deceive the nations once more. He will gather them together for one final assault upon the saints. And when all hope appears to be lost and the camp of the saints is surrounded, then the events of chapter 19 take place. Christ will return to save His people and to destroy His and our enemies. Then comes the final judgment, followed by the new heaven, the new earth, and the eternal state. That's amillennialism. Amillennialism was the dominant view of the church from the time of Augustine through the Reformation for about 1,200 years. It was relegated to a secondary position while post-millennialism and then pre-millennialism held sway across the evangelical scene. But it is quickly ascending once more to the primary position across the church. I think by the end of my generation, more people will be amillennialists than will be any other view. And it is, I believe, the biblical view. I know, however, that it is not the view that many of you came in here with. Not the view that you were taught, not the view that you have held for many years, and likely is not the view that is described in the notes of your study Bible at the bottom of the page. <clears throat> so feel free to take out your marker and just put a big X through, I'm kidding, you don't have to do that unless you want to. No, as I see it, I know that I have my work cut out for me. I know it. Okay? I think that in order to prove to you that my framework, the amillennial framework for understanding Revelation 20 is true, I see that I have to prove four main points. Okay? I need to prove to you, and the burden of proof is on me, I get it, okay? I have to prove to you four main points. Point number one, I need to prove to you that the thousand year time frame is a symbolic way of describing the entire age between the first and second comings of Christ, what the Bible calls the last days. I need to prove that to you. The thousand years is this entire age between the two comings, what the Bible calls the last days. I need to prove to you, secondly, that Satan is presently bound in a bottomless pit. Even though Peter tells us, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and your own experience tells you that Satan is still very much active in the world today. 
Burden of proof is on me. I need to prove that Satan is right now bound in the bottomless pit and prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Number three, I need to prove to you that the battle described in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, is one and the same battle described in chapter 11, verses 7 to 13, chapter 16, verses 12 to 21, and chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, that they're all referring to the same event. And number four, I need to prove to you that the resurrection spoken of in chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, what John calls the first resurrection, is not the resurrection of the body at the end of the age, but rather refers to a spiritual resurrection of which all believers during this age partake, and that all believers in this age reign with Christ, not on the earth, but in heaven. That the reign is heavenly, and the first resurrection is spiritual. I need to prove that to you. Now, ironically, I want to go in reverse order. Because I think the first point will make more sense to you when it rests upon the foundation of the other points. The second and the third points are related by the theme of Satan being bound, number two, and Satan being released to gather the nations to war, number three. And I will deal with both of those and the first point next week. I have one goal this morning, and that goal is to prove to you number four. I want to prove to you that the first resurrection spoken of in this passage is spiritual, partaken of by all believers in this age, and that we presently reign with Christ in heaven. All right? So we're going to focus our attention this week in chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. And my goal this morning is to define for us the first resurrection, the first death, the second resurrection, and the second death. So look with me at this passage. After the description of the binding of Satan in the bottomless pit, John sees another aspect of the vision of a thousand years. Verse 4. We'll come back and we'll deal with 1 to 3 next week. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Mark that. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, mark that, has no power, for they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Then I want you to skip verses 7 to 10. We'll deal with those next week. When Satan is released and the last battle commences, and the armies of Satan and the enemies of Christ are defeated, then we get this description of final judgment in verses 11 to 15. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Note that. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I want you to notice from these two passages that John explicitly mentions a first resurrection and a second death. Do you see that? He mentions a, by explicitly a first resurrection and a second death. By implication then, he also mentions a second resurrection and a first death. Because you can't have a first resurrection without a second resurrection, and you can't have a second death without a first death. All right? Are we on the same page? If he speaks of a first resurrection and a second death, then he also speaks of a second resurrection and a first death. So there are two deaths and two resurrections in Revelation chapter 20. But what do they mean? Well, since we are wading knee-deep in apocalyptic, symbolic imagery, my question is, is there some other place in Scripture where two deaths and two resurrections are mentioned? Is there a more clear passage of Scripture by which we may interpret this admittedly less clear passage of Scripture and so be good interpreters of the Word? Indeed, there is. And that passage where we will spend most of our time this morning is in John chapter 5. I want you to turn there with me. John chapter 5, verses 24 to 29. What I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to give you three words that describe each death and each resurrection. And then I'm going to take those words and I'm going to overlay them on Revelation 20 and we're going to see if they fit. Three words to describe each death and each resurrection from John 5. We're going to take them over into Revelation 20 and see if those same three words can describe the same two deaths and two resurrections and thereby we know how to understand one in light of the other. Alright, let's begin with the first resurrection. Let me give you the three descriptive words and then I will define what I mean by each one. Here are the three words that describe the first resurrection. The first resurrection is present it is spiritual, and it is particular. It is present, it is spiritual, and it is particular. I want to tell you first what I think the new birth is, and then I'm going to try to prove it, all right? Or what the first resurrection is. The first resurrection is, I believe, new birth. It is being born again. It is that sovereign act of God through the Holy Spirit in which He awakens those who are dead in trespasses and sins and He raises them, resurrects them to new spiritual eternal life. If you have been born again, if you are born of the Spirit, you have already experienced the first resurrection. Look with me at John 5, verse 24 and 25. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Let me show you those three words in those two verses. Number one, the first resurrection is present. That is, the first resurrection occurs now, in the present age. There are three clues from this text that tell us that Jesus is referring to a present resurrection, not not one that's going to happen in the future, one that happens now. There are two in verse 24, and there's one in verse 25. All right, number one, in verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, now, has eternal life. So a person who hears the word of Christ and believes in him as the Messiah sent from God has eternal life. Present tense. Believers possess eternal life now. Why? Because they have passed from death to life. They have undergone a spiritual resurrection. They have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life and never to die again. John eleven twenty-five 25, and 26, which we'll come to in a few moments. They have it. You, if you're a believer, you have eternal life. How did you get it? Number two, in verse 24, Jesus adds, He, the one who has eternal life, He, the one who believes, He, the one who hears the word, believes Him who sent me, the one who has eternal life, He does not come into judgment, but, catch it, has passed from death and into life, which sounds to me a whole lot like a resurrection, passing from death and into life. And when does Jesus place this event? In the past. It's a perfect tense verb. In other words, those who hear the word of Christ and believe on the Lord's Messiah have already undergone a spiritual awakening, a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual birth, and that is why they were enabled to hear the word of Christ and believe on him who sent him. They have passed from death to life, therefore they believe and hear and have eternal life. Third, in verse 25, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead, the dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Once again, that's clearly resurrection language, right? You with me? The dead hear and those who hear come to life. They live. The dead who hear the voice of the Son of God come to life. When? When does this resurrection occur? In the present. An hour is coming and is now here. The age of this resurrection is upon us. This is the hour of resurrection because the voice of the Son of God comes to us in the gospel, awakening the dead to new and eternal life. Which means, secondly, here's a second word, that the first resurrection must be spiritual. Because it is obvious from Scripture and from experience that the resurrection of the body, the physical resurrection, does not happen in this age. It happens in the future. 
in the age to come, or at the end of this age, rather, at the return of Christ. Therefore, the resurrection that's happening now must not be physical, it must be spiritual. It must not be the resurrection of the body, it must be referring to the resurrection of the soul. Every person, every person in this room, every person in the world is born into this world in a state of spiritual death, having inherited sin and guilt and death from Adam, Romans 5, 12. From birth, we are dead in trespasses and sins and are by our very natures children of wrath, even as the rest. I want you to turn with me, or you can look up here on the screen, to Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul speaks of our spiritual death and our spiritual resurrection which God gives to us in Christ. And see if you don't see an overlap here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we too all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, dead in sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him. Where? On earth? No. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show to us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Do you see resurrection all over that passage? We were dead in trespasses and sins. God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. Paul is definitely speaking of a resurrection that is present and is spiritual and is particular. The same resurrection Jesus is speaking of in John 5.24. Whoever hears the word of Christ and believes God has passed out of death and into life. The hour has now come when the dead are hearing the voice of the Son of God and those who hear, only those who hear, are living. They're coming to life. New life. Spiritual life. Eternal life. This is new birth. This is the first resurrection. And my prayer early this morning and before this sermon is that by God's grace and power, some of you are experiencing it right now. The first resurrection is lastly particular. Not everyone has a share in the first resurrection. Not everyone is born again. Not everyone is raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. But only those who hear the word of Christ and believe God. Look back at John 5.21. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to who? To whom? To whomever He will. He doesn't give life to everyone. He gives life to whom He will. 
He has the power and the authority to do so, for as he says in verse 26, as the Father has life in himself, even so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, that he may bring to life those whom he will. So the first resurrection is present, it is spiritual, and it is particular. It is the new birth. When the Spirit of God breathes life into the dead soul of one who is dead in trespasses and sins and awakens them to new life so that they, they hear the gospel, they hear the voice of Christ in the gospel and they understand what it means and they embrace it with all of their hearts and they rest their souls upon it. The first resurrection is when God raises His people from death and trespasses and sins to new spiritual life and seats them with Christ in the heavenly places where they presently reign with Christ. Just as John says in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with Him. Where? Where Paul in Ephesians 2 says they will reign with Him in the heavenly places for a thousand years. Excuse me. That's the first resurrection. Let's deal with the second or the first death. Here's the three words for the first death. The first death is present, it is physical, and it is universal. It is present, it is physical, and it is universal. Now I should mention that neither in this passage nor in John 5 is the first death mentioned explicitly. It's not in John 5, it's not in Revelation 20. It is, however, implied in both passages. The first death is simply the physical death that every person experiences at the end of his or her natural life. In John 5, the first death, the death of the body is implied because Jesus explicitly speaks about the resurrection of the body. And you can't raise a body that's not first dead. Verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. How did they get in the tombs? They died. As we shall see, this verse refers to the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of the body on the last day. Who's being raised on the last day bodily? Those who are in the tombs. Who's in the tombs? The dead. Those who have undergone the first death, which is the death of the body. It's also implied in Revelation 20 because there's a second death mentioned and you can't have a second death unless you also have a first death. So the first death is present. That is, it takes place now in this age. This present age, as you all know by experience of the loss of loved ones, this present age is an age of death. But not so the age to come. There is no death in the age to come. When Jesus returns at the end of the age, He will once and for all destroy death and He will make all things new. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.26, the last enemy that Christ will destroy is death. But he hasn't destroyed it yet. And so, in this age, before Christ returns to destroy the last enemy, which is death, 
death reigns. Everyone dies. Now it is present. Secondly, it is physical. It is the death of the body. When a person comes to the end of his or her natural life, when the heart ceases to pump, the brain ceases to function, the lungs cease to take in air, the person dies and their bodies are placed, John 5.28, in the tombs, awaiting the command of Christ on the last day. Finally, the first death is universal. It claims everyone. No one escapes. Young, old, small, great, rich, poor, slave, free, saint, sinner. Everyone partakes of the first death. No one escapes. So the first death is present, it is physical, and it is universal. But here's the good news. For those who have undergone the first resurrection, the first death has no sting. Christ's life and death and resurrection has taken away the sting of death for those who have been made alive in Christ, which is why when when Jesus appears at the tomb of Lazarus, who's been dead physically for four days, he tells his sister Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me has the first resurrection, shall never die. Or, as John says it in Revelation 20 and verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a share in the first resurrection, for over such the second death has no power. There's no sting. You, believer, will experience the first death, but it will have no sting because there's no second death behind it for you. Now to the second resurrection. The second resurrection is future. It is physical. And it is universal. The second resurrection is the resurrection of the body on the last day. And Jesus speaks of it in verses 26 to 29. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Notice that the second resurrection is future. Notice carefully the difference between Jesus' words in verse 25 and verse 28. In verse 25, referring to the first resurrection, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, now, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So the first resurrection is present. It is now, here. But look at verse 28. After he's been talking about the authority that he has to judge, Jesus says, don't marvel, for an hour is coming. And you expect him to say, and is now here, but he doesn't. An hour is coming future when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth so the second resurrection unlike the first is future it is coming the first resurrection an hour is coming and is now here the second resurrection an hour is coming this clearly refers to the resurrection of the dead on the last day when christ will raise the dead and judge them 
The second resurrection is physical. Unlike the first resurrection, which was spiritual, right? New birth, the receiving, the imparting of eternal life. The second resurrection is the resurrection of the body. All who are in the tombs, physically dead in the tombs, all of them will hear the voice of the Son of God when He returns and commands them to rise and they will come forth and stand before His judgment throne. As John says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. The good to everlasting life. The wicked to everlasting judgment. Finally, the second resurrection is universal. It's not like the first resurrection, which was particular, applying only those to those to whom Jesus gives life, only those who hear the word and believe. The second resurrection, on the other hand, is universal. It encompasses everyone, believer and unbeliever, righteous and wicked, who has ever lived. Everyone will be raised from the tombs. They will be raised from the dead bodily on the last day and will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Listen to me. There is no evidence anywhere outside of Revelation 20 for the idea of a thousand-year gap between the resurrection of believers and the resurrection of unbelievers. There's no evidence for that anywhere outside of Revelation 20, which leads me to believe that's not what Revelation 20 is saying. All of Scripture testifies to the fact that there is one resurrection of the body on the last day, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, followed by the judgment just like it is in Daniel 12, Matthew 25, and here in John 5, 29. They are raised together and judged. Lastly, we come to the second death. The second death is, you can probably fill it in, it is future, it is spiritual, and it is particular. The second death is found in the final phrase of verse 29. It is the resurrection of judgment which is differentiated from the resurrection of life. The benefits of Christ's atoning death and saving work are not applied to everyone. They are applied to those who hear the word and believe. The gift of righteousness is not given to those who do not trust in Christ. Therefore, the only thing that unbelievers can expect from God when they are raised bodily from the grave is everlasting judgment and that is the second death. It is eternal damnation. What John calls in Revelation 20 the lake of fire. The second death is future. It follows upon the second resurrection on the last day. There is a sense in which even now unbelievers are under God's judgment and wrath even as even now, believers have already passed out of death and into life. They're already under His judgment and wrath. But there will come a day when they will be raised bodily, all men, and they will stand in the flesh before the judgment seat of Christ. The second death is spiritual. It's not a physical death. This is not annihilation. The lake of fire is not annihilation. Jesus doesn't raise them physically in order to kill them physically again. 
It is everlasting judgment. It is a fire which does not consume. They do not cease to exist. Rather, and terrifyingly, they experience forever the wrath and condemnation of God in a place the Bible calls hell. Finally, the second death is particular. Not everyone experiences the second death. Those who hear the voice of the Son of God and believe do not come into this resurrection of judgment. Verse 24. Those to whom the Son wished to give life do not experience the second death. Those who experience the first resurrection, those who are born again, do not experience the second death. Revelation chapter 20, this is why John says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, for over them the second death has no power. And then down in verse 14, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If their names are written in the book, they're not subject to the second death. So this is the framework through which I believe that Revelation 20 verses 4 to 6 should be interpreted. So let's just walk through this one final summary there at the bottom of your bulletin. We're concerned with the first resurrection. That's what appears there in verse 6. The first resurrection, I submit to you, is present. It takes place during the thousand years, which are symbolic of the entirety of the present age between the first and second comings of Christ. The first resurrection is spiritual. It refers to the new birth and to the eternal life which this new birth brings. Such that, as Jesus told Martha, those who believe, though they die physically, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and believes shall never die. Speaking of a spiritual resurrection. How can this be when believers continue to die throughout this age? How can Jesus says, the one who lives and believes in me will never die? Because those who are born of the Spirit, though they suffer the first death, they come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. And the first resurrection is particular. It is experienced, if you'll notice, not only by the martyrs. It is experienced by all who persevere in faith and so refuse to worship the beast in its image and receive its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. In other words, every saint, every follower of the Lamb has a part in the first resurrection And therefore, every saint is blessed and holy, and over them the second death has no power. Whether you are premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial is an important question. But in the end, that's not the issue of supreme importance. What matters most is whether or not you have a share in the first resurrection. Have you heard the voice of the Son of God calling to you in the Gospel? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, 
All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me. Have you heard him say that to your soul in the preaching of the gospel? And hearing his voice, do you believe that he is the one sent from God to bring you rest for your soul? Do you believe God's promise as fulfilled in Christ that whoever, whoever believes on the Son has forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Then go to him. Call on him. Flee from the coming wrath to the refuge that is supplied for you richly in Christ Jesus. Flee from the second death by going to Christ for the first resurrection. That's the call to you this morning. This morning I exhort you, whatever you think about what I've just presented to you in terms of timing and millennial views and all of those things, Whatever you think about those, hear the plea of this text and of this pastor for you. Make your calling and election sure. Make sure that you have a part in the first resurrection. And you can do so by embracing Christ today and submitting your life to His sovereign word. Then and only then, when you have embraced Christ by faith and submitted your life to the authority of His Word and His kingship mediated through His Word, then and only then can you have utter confidence and absolute assurance that you are among the blessed and the holy who have a share in the first resurrection. And you can walk out of here knowing that the first death will have no sting and the second death will hold no power. My Father... As we take a few moments to end this service, I pray that you will grant the first resurrection. I pray that you would open ears so that people may hear the voice of the Son of God. And hearing, they may believe. And believing, they may live. Raise them. And if that's you, I want you to take a couple of moments of silence that we're going to have and I want you to cry out to Jesus. Call out to Him. Cry for forgiveness, for mercy, for pardon, for life, for renewal of your heart. Call out to Him. And I tell you on the authority of the Word of God that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved they will have a part in the first resurrection and over them the second death will hold no power Lord Jesus, as you continue to receive the cries and the calls of these people, the prayers 
of these people. Hear, answer, raise, and save. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.